This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the US, UK, Canada, and Australia have joined together for a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in Beijing in February, which means they will not send any government officials to the Games. Athletes from these countries will still compete. Japan has said it will send athletes as well as officials, but not high-level government officials. But other U.S. allies, like South Korea and France, for example, have so far said they will not join this boycott. Officials in Washington and in the other capitals joining this boycott cite human rights abuses in China against Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang and the crackdown on pro-democracy movements in Hong Kong. And just before the the United States announced its decision to boycott, Washington in early December hosted a summit for democracy with 110 governments taking part. Interestingly, China reacted quite sharply, releasing a critique of the state of democracy in the United States, which, by the way, almost everyone agrees is not great, but going further even than that, claiming China is actually a democracy. So I'm joined today by Bilahari Kosikan, a former permanent secretary of Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, on the line from Singapore, and from Beijing, I am joined by my own colleague, Straits Times China Bureau Chief Tan Don Wei. Dawn, Ambassador Kosikan, thank you for your time. Nice to have you on Asian Insider. I hope you can hear me clearly. Thanks. We hear you fine. Excellent. Thank you. Dawn, if I may begin with you, uh, what is the reaction like in China on social media or otherwise broadly to this U.S. diplomatic boycott of the Olympics? Um, there actually hasn't been uh, too much discussion and interest on social media about the boycott. Um, I think the Chinese took the cue from their officials, you know, who have repeatedly said, nobody cares if you come or not. Um, you know, the stars of the games are the athletes and not the officials, you know, and you shouldn't be politicizing sports. So their official tack has been very dismissive and just to shrug it off, you know, saying that we, we didn't even invite you. So they're trying to brush it off as something that doesn't really bother them. Um, but the state media have taken pains to um, denounce the boycott multiple times. So it does make you wonder if they truly are so nonchalant about it. Um, but this boycott has been within China's calculation. It knew that the turnout would be low um, and that there was the real possibility of boycotts. So they had scaled back invitations early on. You know, we now know that um, Russian President Vladimir Putin will be attending uh, I do think that China is not as anxious about projecting its power and its image internationally with these games as it did back in 2008 with the uh, Summer Olympics. And what matters more to China this time is that they pull off a games that uh, shows off to the world their successful COVID management system, which, as you know, uh, they've been trumpeting quite a uh, some time now, especially after being criticized uh, for their zero COVID strategy. And privately, we've been told by Chinese officials that the games will be a test to see if the authorities will relax their COVID rules after it is over. Interesting. Uh, Ambassador, what has the U.S. achieved with this boycott? How do you see it feeding into the relationship with China? The other day, uh, uh, an Asian analyst told me this is a public snub to China, one which China may not forget. 
is it yet one more toxic additive to the increasingly adversarial relationship? Look, when you when you take actions on human rights, you always have to ask yourself one simple question. Am I trying to do good or am I trying just to look and feel good myself? And I think in this case, it's the latter. Right? Because it's not going to change Chinese behavior one iota. And as Dawn just said, I don't think they care particularly much. I mean, they of course have to respond in some way. You know, every any country would, right? So I think it, you know, it just adds an irritant without achieving anything. But it would be seen as a slight. Well, it's meant to be a slight. But if I were the Chinese, I, I would pretend not to be slighted. <laughs> <laughs> so but don't... of course, I'm not right. <laughs> I'm notoriously thick-skinned, so that's a different issue. <laughs> so, Don, going back to the uh, the other the other topic at hand, which is the democracy, the summit for democracy, which created a bit of a, a brief uh, sort of uh, buzz. Uh, critics say this divides the world and so forth. Uh, what was the reaction? Uh, we know that China released its own paper and all that, but what was the reaction generally? Uh, was it even noticed on Chinese social media, for example, that people talk about it? No, again, you know, no great interest in the democracy summit at all on social media. Um, you know, netizens here, like everywhere else, you know, they're much less interested in politics um, and much more interested in celebrity news or human interest type stories. In fact, um, the top trending topic on Weibo over the past couple of days has been the, the, the rather acrimonious divorce of American Taiwanese singer Wang Lihong. Um, but the propaganda machinery here had, you know, around the time that the guest list to the democracy summit was announced, um, been on this major campaign to counter the Western narrative on democracy and, of course, pushing its own version of it and also painstakingly pointing out how it is more superior, it is the more superior system. And its target audience is clearly not domestic, but international. You know, for instance, around the time of the summit, um, China organized a forum for democracy and had Vice Foreign Minister Le Yucheng uh, give a keynote speech, and he spoke in English. Um, and it's, you know, Chinese embassies around the world were pushing op-eds by their ambassadors and academics to be published um, in the local papers. So there was definitely a very systematic, very concerted drive to make sure that the, you know, the voice was heard um, and that the brand of democracy was known. But whether or not it is understood or accepted, I think probably mattered a little bit less. Ambassador, this summit for democracy is a new idea, as we know, by and by every measure that we've seen, democracy has been backsliding around the world, including in the United States. So clearly, democracy may have a credibility problem, or put another way, is seeing a challenge to its credibility. And China seemed to take the bait, although, as Don says, there wasn't, you know, widespread talk about it in the Chinese public, but still, the propaganda machinery did make something of it. What do you make of this summit? And as we know, there's going to be a follow-up. What do you make of all of this? Uh, first of all, Namal, you are wrong, you know. This is not a new idea. Okay. The Clinton administration had exactly the same idea. Uh -huh. How many people remember it? Only idiots like me remember it because we are obsessed with these things, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, everybody has forgotten it. This will be forgotten in a month if it is not already forgotten, right? And even if they have a follow-up, the follow-up will be forgotten. I think the main reason they had it is because during the campaign, if you recall, uh, now President Joe Biden 
to distinguish him. himself from his predecessor who, who couldn't care less about democracy of any sort, right? Right? Decided to uh, stress this. And he had to keep his promise and he did. Right? And and I wouldn't take it too seriously, you know? Now, mind you, having said that, uh, China is not entirely wrong as a matter of rather obscure political philosophy that they are a democracy too. Because if you give me two minutes, I will, uh, less than two minutes, look, in the late 17th century, a unique idea arose in Europe that sovereignty resides in the people. It is not something conferred by heaven or by God on a family or on an individual. It resides in the people. And that idea grew stronger and stronger in the 18th. And in, by the time of the 19th century, it was more or less dominant idea. And in the 20th century, three forms of mass politics arose from that idea. There is Western liberal democracy. There was fascism, which is also based on popular sovereignty. And there was people's democracy, based on the dictatorship of the proletariat. So China is not wrong in, from a point of view of political philosophy. Uh -huh. right? because, uh, because it is not the Chinese government's right to rule does not rely on the mandate of heaven. It relies on the Communist Party representing the people or the most authentic part of the people. That is the theory anyway, right? So they are not wrong. And in any case, in a more practical level, there are many varieties of democracy. Now, whether one is superior to another, that is an entirely different issue, you know? Right? Actually, if you look at American democracy and if you look at the Chinese political system, uh, they both have strengths, they both have weaknesses. Right? Uh, and that's true of any political system you you may care to uh, to identify anywhere in the world. So, so would the, why did the Chinese respond? Because, you know, countries, this was obviously a, a measure aimed at China and any country would respond, right? So they felt bound to, they had to, they had to respond. I don't think they had to respond, but, you know, it's quite understandable that they did respond, you know? Oh, that's quite interesting. Okay. So, so whether anybody buys their idea that, you know, this is a superior system, again, that's another matter. But they have to say it, you know. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Okay. So, Dawn, uh, how to, I'm curious, how to ordinary Chinese whom you meet every day feel about the direction of this re relationship with the United States. Um, is nationalistic sentiment sort of hardening in China vis-a-vis -vis the United States? What, what's the general sentiment? What have you been able to pick up? I mean, it, it's been hardening for, for quite some time now. That doesn't just, you know, happen um, overnight. Um, and I think for the, you know, for the regular Chinese, they... A lot of them still, you know, look up to the United States in many ways. Um, but, um, at the same time, you know, they, because of, of, um, propaganda efforts here, you know, they have been feeling more and more self-confident about, you know, the, their achievements. Um, um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, they see what's going on in the U.S., you know, state media have been, um, playing it up, you know, like the Capitol, um, Hill riots. Um, and they see, uh, you know, that 
they 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 think that the, U, the U.S. is a failing system, and whereas mm-hmm. they are you know pretty much on the rise, you know. During COVID last year, they were the only major economy to actually post um, positive growth. So, so I think all of that has kind of fed into their self confidence, um, and you know they are kind of coming around to accepting that maybe, you know, if if decoupling happens, you know, so be it. Ambassador, a last word from you. Uh, how optimistic are you that the U.S. and China will eventually find some equilibrium, some sustainable, mutually respectful détente, or do you think that they are sliding in front of our eyes into a Thucydides trap-like situation in which the incumbent big power does not give way peacefully to the rising power? No, I think they will eventually come to some kind of modus vivendi, right? I am not a great believer in the Thucydides trap because it is a rather mechanical theory, you know, uh, and and life doesn't work that way. I think the issue is really this: China is not a rising power; it is a risen power, right? Right? And I think the mainstream in American foreign policy, whether on the right, the left, or the right, does accept that. The issue is what you do with your power now that you have risen, right? I think there were delusions on both sides. The delusion on the American side, which was a very persistent one, was that as as China changes its economy, it would in some way become a bit more like a Western political system. Why they should have thought that, that's another matter. We need not go into that now, but it was a total delusion. People forget that China is a communist system, not in its ideology, but in its political structure. And the idea of reform in a communist system is to strengthen the role of the Vanguard Party, not to broaden the space for the individual, (laughs) as in the Western idea. Uh, That was the Western illusion. The Chinese illusion, I think John just um, articulated quite well. I think somewhere around the global financial crisis, they began to drink too much of their own Kool-Aid and began to believe their own propaganda. Now, the U.S., system and Western democracy has serious problems, but it also has serious strengths. Now, democracies are very decentralized system, and there is nothing in China's long history, nor in the Chinese party, Communist Party's uh, shorter, but still quite long history, that leads them to believe that a decentralized system is a good thing, right? In fact, the entire trust of Chinese political culture and history is in the other direction, right? So I don't think they understand America's strengths very well. And one of America's strengths is that what happens in Washington, D.C., I know your friends and my, Namal, will be heavenly, your American friends and my American friends who live in Washington, D.C. won't believe this, but the most important things in America do not happen in Washington, D.C. and never have. They happen in American corporations, they happen in American universities, they happen on main streets of the 50 states, they happen on Wall Street. Uh, that is not how things happen in China, right? right? So I think there is a certain degree of mutual incomprehension here uh, among policymakers. It's not that they don't know each other. There are plenty of people in China who study America very well, plenty of people in America who study China very well, uh, but nobody listens to them in either country. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is, this to me is, is, a, is a red flag. I mean, I keep going back to what Robert McNamara said uh, you know, when he visited, I think it was uh, uh, when he visited Vietnam, and he said, he said, we did not understand, the Americans did not understand the nationalism of the Vietnamese. 
And he said, we do not understand the Chinese and we don't understand the Iranians. So when you talk about mutual incomprehension, this, this is a very fundamental issue which the two have to deal with, right? Well, they have dealt with it uh, since 1972 until recently. I think they are dealing with it. They have just, I think it has dawned on uh, America that, that uh, China is not going to become to some, not going to become like Taiwan or Japan or South Korea. It is dawned on the Chinese too that they may have somewhat miscalculated uh, in thinking that America is in a state of irrevocable decline, <laughs> right? But neither will admit it, of course, neither will admit it, you know, right? Uh, huh? These are both fairly, these are pragmatic systems. They are both coherent systems huh? and they will come to some accommodation. I'm not entirely pessimistic. I don't think there is inevitable war all right. So, but I think there will be tension. I think there will be structural competition for the foreseeable future. But Maybe. I think they will manage it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. That has any other times, but they will manage it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, it's just. It's just intriguing to me that I don't think any 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 global superpower, including the colonial powers, gave up willingly. There is one big there is one big difference that everybody forgets, particularly us in Singapore and Southeast Asia. That's the nuclear factor. Uh -huh. Nuclear deterrence kept the long peace, as uh, one scholar called it, between the US and the Soviet Union. It will keep peace between the US and China. That does not mean there cannot be minor conflicts here and there along the way, huh? And some of them can be pretty dangerous, of particularly course. over Taiwan. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But but I don't see war by design. Uh, that means war as an instrument of policy being deployed by either side against oh. each other. Okay. Don, last quick one. I know I said last word before, but last quick one to you. How optimistic are you that the US and China will work things out and without having the kind of clash, a war, small war even that we are talking about? Um, um, I'm pretty optimistic, you know, I've always been. Um, a lot of, you know, what they say to each other, a lot of it, as we know, is just posturing, um, right? You know, it's, it's, it's stuff that they think their domestic audience wants to hear. But then I'm pretty certain that, you know, behind the scenes, something is going on, you know, at the working level, perhaps they're trying to iron things out. Um, you know, even though the, the U.S. has announced this diplomatic boycott, um, I think after the C Biden meeting, there have been some sort of movement behind the scenes in terms of trying to establish certain channels of engagement, um, so that, you know, they can, they can talk more about these so-called, you know, guardrails that they've, they've, they've talked about trying to establish uh -huh. these guardrails for, um, defining the competition space. So I do think that that's things are happening behind the scenes that people, um, you know, that that's not public, but, um, I think both sides are probably working towards something a little bit more constructive. That's nice to hear. Ambassador Bilahari Kosikan, Tan Donway, thank you for joining me on Nation Insider today and take care out there. Thanks, okay. Nama. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.